The following podcast is a She Did It and SydneyNanberg.com production. Welcome back to the She Did It podcast. My name is Sydney Nanberg, and I am the creator and founder of She Did It and SydneyNanberg.com, your self care and wellness resource with a twist, of course. My intention is to share valuable information, tips, and tricks to help you live a fulfilling life. I want you to come here looking for inspiration and leave with the tools you need to take on whatever it is you are going after. Thank you all so much again for tuning in. If you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button and never miss an episode. Guys, this is all free and valuable content coming your way two times per week. And I'd also love your feedback. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please go ahead and leave a review. I would be so grateful. So today I have a an incredible guest. I'm speaking with an inspirational woman who is truly doing it all with a no excuses mentality. She has 18 kids and here is Jen Taylor. Jen Taylor is known as the mom of 18. She's a coach, speaker, a published author of a self-help memoir called Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess. She's had a blog for almost eight years and a podcast, The Naked Podcaster, where she's been bearing it all for over two years. She's a new newbie vlogger, runner, minimalist, and healthy life enthusiast. She, like This woman's literally doing it all. She's amazing. You guys are going to love this episode, even if you aren't a parent. Listening to her story and how she gets things done and goes about life despite any obstacle that has come her way is beyond uplifting and makes me want to push my limits. I'm not even a parent and I found this to be just so valuable to my life and I can't wait for you to get to know her so let's dive in. Welcome back to the She Did It podcast. Today I am talking to mom of 18, Jen Taylor. Jen is a coach, speaker, published author of a self-help memoir, Hello, my name is Warrior Princess. I was actually just on her podcast, The Naked Podcaster, so you guys will have to go ahead and give that a listen. But I'm I'm excited to dive in today because she brings so much value to the table, and I can't wait for you to hear her story. So welcome, Jen. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So let's start off with your story because it is so inspiring. What you are doing is so incredible. Introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and what you're doing. I'm Jen Taylor, like you said, and I'm mom of 18, and usually that's where the conversation ends, because <laughs> once, you say, <laughs> once you say you have 18 kids, there's not really, like, what else do you have to say? Um, and that actually was really hard for me for a while. I think that one issue for a lot of moms is we lose our, our identity with our kids, with having kids, and right. I never felt that way, but I did feel like there's so much more like we get past that part of the conversation or I would try not to talk about being a parent at all when you're at networking events or for example you said I'm a published author so I I want to promote my book and once you know I'm mom of 18 you don't even remember that I have a book and so right it wasn't more a loss of identity it was trying to separate being a parent to everything else that I was and then I just decided you know, that is a majority of who I am. And I did not lose my identity in it. So what better way to discuss being mom of 18 and all that goes with that. And that you can still be a published author and have a podcast and run your own business. And you can still do all those things. And one thing that comes up, I know for parents who are older, uh, and we're probably not talking to those parents, but as an example, empty nest syndrome, where parents they're you know the mom the kid kids leave the house and they don't know what to do with themselves 
And I never wanted to be that parent. So I went into parenting just knowing a lot about what I did not want. I didn't really know how to do it or how to do it well or all of the positive things that, I mean, I knew some of that, you know, you want to be a good parent. What does that mean? I didn't know what all that meant, but I did know what I didn't want. And I didn't want my kids to leave and to feel devastated at this hole that was left in my life. And that sounded tragic and awful. And I wanted to be more than that. And so I think I set things up in my parenting journey so that I don't feel that way. I think that's so, first of all, that's so interesting when you talk about the empty nest syndrome. I'm not a parent yet, but my parents are recently like empty nesters. My brother just graduated college a year ago. Um, I've been, I'm 25, so I'm out of the house. And they told me that the day that my brother moved out, so they were officially empty nesters. So this was like a year, I could be totally wrong, a year and a half, two years ago, they went out for a drink (laughs) and they went out with friends and they had a great night and they were like yeah no we're gonna have fun and we're gonna enjoy our life because I feel like so many parents they don't know what and I'm not again I'm not a parent but they don't know what to do because here you are raising these kids for for, you know 20 18 years I guess before they go to college and then it's like now what and my parents are kind of similar they have a similar attitude to you and and they were like we're gonna enjoy our life we're gonna do something with our life um (laughs) but I want to know you have so you have 18 kids and I and you're doing all of these things so first of all did you always want to have that many children (laughs) what what is the age range and what is it like okay no there was was no (laughs) there was no goal there was no end result it's certainly not a competition that I would want to win um you know having most kids um now what happened was at 15 I went to an OB Uh, and he told me, I I think I've, I think I've had some very insightful, intuitive people in my life. And that's part one. Part two is I listened. So he said, and now I'm 48. So I'm almost 49. So I was 15 and this was the era before, you know, cell phones and computers and like 1985, I was 15. So he told me I would possibly not be able to have kids and to plan that I would have to go through infertility. And still at my age now, with all of the knowledge that we have, I'm not sure what he saw or what in an OB exam that would have led him to say that. But I was very at 15 years old at 15. I was a virgin. He was the first man that ever touched me below the belt. You know, I mean, like I, I had no experience at that point at 15 years old. So, um, Whatever he saw or felt, he said that, and I listened. And I think it's important sometimes we can have, we can be surrounded by intuitive people. If we don't listen, it doesn't really matter. Um, And so I was prepared that I would have a family in a different way. And I did go through infertility. So I went through seven surgeries and I did get pregnant. Um, My doctor told me I wouldn't. And long story short, he hugged me and said it was my miracle. And it was right at the point where they were getting ready to do in vitro. And I said, I'm not willing to do in vitro. I did these surgeries. I'm maxed out on medication. I just know my life that the in vitro is not my route. And for women who do that, I have the utmost respect because it's a very tough journey. And I just knew that wasn't my journey. Um, I was okay at ending things where they were and just moving forward. And so in that process, I actually got pregnant. So after that, everything for a reason, right? 
Right. He said, it's a miracle. You got pregnant off the schedule we put you on. I have no idea how this happened. And I don't know that you'll carry this child to term or that if you get pregnant in the future, you'll ever carry a child to term. So nobody could tell me ever specifically what was wrong. I had a hysterectomy at 33. And again, the doctor just said, you should have never been able to get pregnant and carry a pregnancy to term. Well, what did you see? Like, why, why would you say that? And I don't know. And that's okay. I think the universe has bigger plans, no matter what you believe, God, the universe, whatever. Um, there were bigger plans, right? So I did get pregnant a total of seven times and I lost three of those. And the last pregnancy, I lost twins at 19 weeks. And that between having seven pregnancies and losing twins at 19 weeks, my body was tapped and I had a hysterectomy. So I had three more surgeries actually in that process. So 10 surgeries and seven pregnancies total. And those were actually the surprises. So people will say, oh, you did foster care and you adopted, you took on extras. And my kids all know it was such a crapshoot that I was going to get pregnant and stay pregnant, that those four babies that made it to term that I gave birth to, those were the extras. Those were the unplanned, unexpected, surprise kids. And so my mentality was very different. I would get pregnant and think, well, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens this time. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I was really blessed that I had four that I carried to term three of them. I had home births with a midwife, two were water births, I breastfed for two years. I, you know, my doctor was a naturopath. I think a lot of my success was because I started out so healthy and I maintained being healthy. I, I always exercised. And in the meantime, I didn't know if I would get pregnant or stay pregnant. And so I knew uh, my book is a is a self-help memoir about my life growing up. So there's a lot of dysfunction. And I understood foster kids because I grew up like those kids. And okay. there was nothing in anyone's file that I read that I hadn't experienced to one degree or another. Well, tell me about your childhood. I, I, I didn't know that. I had one younger sister. She's three years younger. And um, my parents divorced when I was six. My dad, I was in New England. I was raised in New England and Rhode Island. And then okay. in, high, in high school, I moved to Vermont with my great grandmother. Um, my okay. parents are both addicts. My dad was a raging, angry, nasty, one of the meanest people I had ever, I have ever met in my life. He died in his fifties oh. of a heart attack, sitting at the table, cigarette in one hand and beer in the other. It was not tragic when people lose a parent and they're devastated. I have no connection to that. I did not, I, I did not feel that way. I felt relieved that he could no longer hurt anyone. I saw him. In his lifespan and mine, you know, the time that he was alive, after I was six years old, I saw him six times in my life. And it was probably, you know, like five too many. Um, I watched him break my stepmother's nose and just beat the hell out of everyone. Um, Very angry, very mean. And I knew from that I didn't want to be like that. My mom was, her addictions, I mean, there was alcohol and there was... Uh, weed growing up. And again, I was born in 1970. This isn't our time right now. So there are things that right. you say that I may say that seem like, well, what's well, a big freaking deal. And it right. wasn't, it's it was not time. the same world and it wasn't the same attitude. Right. So, you know, being a little kid between six and nine with her having friends over and a revolving door of men, I think her addictions were more 
um, men and feeling good about yourself through someone else, through another person, um, and right. food. Right. So she used to go to Weight Watchers meetings and yo-yo diet. And I remember her, there's a picture of her I remember very distinctly. And I remember taking the picture in this whole time. I was in junior high school and she had lost weight. I remember that she was a size 12. And it's interesting having my perspective now. I'm a size four and I have in my whole life, you know, except for having kids. And there's nothing good or bad about that. It just is, you know, that's the comparison. And right. Her struggle with food and weight, she hated to cook. And I think more that she allowed things to happen from the men in her life. And she was, I felt like my sister and I were on the back burner. And she's still alive. And we have a very limited relationship. And I'm sure her story through, if, if she and I sat down and told a story in a certain time block from 1970 to 1985, for example, if we both told that story, they would be vastly different coming from two different, very different perspectives. Right. My perspective, my story as that child was, you know, she, she wanted to go back to work. She got married young and had kids young. And I did also, I had my first child at 21 and so did she. And we were both married and it was planned. I mean, I went through a year of infertility. So I was in infertility at like between 19 and 20, which is ridiculous, but I was married and I was having issues. And so there was no reason not to do that. She was married and she had me naturally, you know, so we both have similar experiences, but our attitudes were vastly different. Um, I feel like she wanted to sow her wild oats and have her like the life that she had never had before kids, except she had kids. And so it right. was more that she chose very, very abusive, addictive men and turned a blind eye or was lost in her own world or didn't see what was going on. Um, we had men that stole from us that beat oh, her up a oh lot. Gosh. I mean, I, I watched and heard my mom get beat up on a very regular basis. She was covered in bruises for years of my life. Um, I was molested. What's that? You saw a lot of negativity growing up and, and you were just going to say something else, but experienced it yourself. Yeah, we were, my sister and I were kicked out of the house. Um, I was held in a corner. There were, there was a off and on for about five years the person that was around then that I talk about as the monster in my book, um, he used to hold me in a corner and put his fist. So it was like just not touching my face and just punch at my face over and over and over and over again. And so oh my God. I remember thinking, you know, getting screamed at thinking, just hit me and get it over with. Like that's going to heal. Just hit me and leave me alone. But the emotional stuff, the being yelled at and talked down to, that is a lot more difficult. You can't, it's not quantifiable. And you, you know, you, you can't say, well, I have this many bruises from being hit this many times. Emotional abuse is, you can't quantify, you can't show the proof that it happened. And it's much more damaging. I think my mom just kind of was in her own kind of hell. And we took the brunt of a lot that was going on. That is not an excuse for it. That is just me as an adult realizing that she has her own story in that. In the meantime, mm -hmm. while she was living her story, I was living a nightmare. I had a, a bag packed under my bed for years of my life. 
And that was just the escape plan. And I can say, oh, well, we would get kicked out of the house on the street and people think, oh, that's so terrible. Well, it was better sometimes than the alternative, which was being in the house. So you said you were going to say that you were molested. Yeah, I was. And I, I lost my virginity to date rape from someone I knew in high school when I was 16. So I did not have good. And I, I mean, sexuality was open in a slightly different way in the seventies than it was now. So like I could, I would wake up with, I was a little kid in second grade. My little sister had anxiety, horrible anxiety, and she would get fevers and hallucinate. And um, I was the older one. And of course felt like I had to take care of everyone. I think that that's a skewed perception, but that was how I felt. And I used to get a second grade when the divorce happened and my mom started dating and stuff was when I started to get migraines. And I would wake up and want to ask her for medicine. And I knew how long sex would take by the sounds she was making. And the door would be open or it was on the couch. Or like sex was not a mystery to me at all. And as a kid, you know, you don't know anything different. So it's an odd right. feeling as a little kid feeling like this isn't right. <laughs> this isn't how things should be. This isn't how I want my kids to feel. Even though you're a little kid, you know, you're seven or eight. You're like, when, I, when I'm a mom, I'm never going to make my kids feel this way. And I'm never going to do this. But you don't have anything to compare it to. And right. you don't know what about it's wrong it's or you why know. it's wrong. Right. But I knew that it wasn't right and I wanted it to be different. And I, I didn't know what so, that meant. So, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you <laughs> jump in whenever you want. No. So I was going to say, is that part of what led you to, like, having 18 kids of your own and creating this life for yourself? Because you saw at a young age that this is not what I want for my future and this is not what I want for my kids. Is that what... You know, because, you know, obviously 18 kids, it's a lot. And the fact that you're also doing all these amazing things is it's a lot and it's inspiring. Is that kind of what your childhood, is that kind of what led you to where you are today? Yes. And I think I think that there are um, layers to that. You know, that doctor telling me I wouldn't have my own kids or I might go through infertility, you know, that planted the seed that, well, if I want to have a family, I can do it in a, in a different, I can adopt, I can do foster care. There are other ways that I can do that. So that really opened that up for me. And foster care was a a huge draw because I related to those kids. So like I said, I would read a file and there's nothing in there that they've gone through that I haven't gone through, but there are definitely different levels. I had a kid once that was not part of the 18 because I kids came and went and I have no idea what that number is. I did did foster care for 12 years and the 18 kids are the kids that stayed. They stuck around and they were, or they were long-term and, Mm -hmm. um, or aged out or, you know, they didn't reunify. They didn't go back to their parents, but the state never terminated parental rights. So they couldn't be adopted. And so they're kind of this, there's five out of the 18 kids that are kind of in that limbo stage. They, they aged out or it was a different circumstance, but they, they stayed long-term and certainly their, their involvement in that situation is on and off. They're kind of hot and cold. When you are a kid in that limbo, uh, it's a, it's different and it's difficult. And I'm just always there if they need me. So how does it affect their mental health? I think it's the worst for them because they never have 
a place of stability. So of that five, one of them I had from three months to four years and she's 12 now and I've kept track of her and our families mm -hmm. kind of intertwine. So that was different because she was young. Uh, the other four, um, one was 12, one was 10, one was nine. And, and those three pretty much, they aged out. And so the okay. nine-year-old is now 31. She's got four kids oh, of her okay. own and we have a great relationship and talk quite a bit. And one that's 12 and is now 27. And that's sort of on again, off again, but I don't love them any different. So from, you know, and then the other one was not, he was 10 when he came to me 12 permanently. He aged out with me. He's 26 right now. He's actually been missing for almost three years. So oh, that's a totally different devastation. And then the last of the five was actually a foreign exchange student from Germany. She came when she was 15 and wow. stayed with us just over a year. And she's 33 now. So those five of the 18, I call them the extras, you know, they don't fit the, the foreign exchange student is a little different because she has a family that she right. came from. But of those other four, it's kind of, they feel constantly moved around. They don't feel like they have any stability. I know that my son who who's missing before that and my daughter who's 31 that moved in with me at nine and aged out, they both say the same thing. It would have been easier if they could have been adopted and had that permanency. And that piece of paper mm -hmm. doesn't mean anything to me. I don't feel any differently about them, but there's something in that process emotionally where they get to kind of heal and feel like they have a permanent family. And I've told both of them. And I even recently, um, Casey, who's 31, I said, Hun, if you want me to adopt you at 31, let's go to court. It, I, right. I'll adopt you. It'll change your birth certificate. If, if that makes a difference to you to go through that process, I'm 150% at any point in your life to go through that process. You're mine, and it doesn't make any difference to me. I will never feel differently. But if you still emotionally want to go through that process, let's do it. And there are times that she's like, yeah, I, I really want to. And there are times that she doesn't talk about it, and she's 31. I think right. what would have made you a difference. Love. Right. Well, the problem is that you want to, you still, you still have the little kid inside you that wants to heal. You right. carry that little girl, that nine-year-old little girl, the 15-year-old little girl, you carry that little girl in you and you're 31 and logically it doesn't make sense to go through an adoption, but emotionally you want to have that little girl wants to process that emotionally. And so for these kids, that's very right. difficult. And I don't have an answer. I know that that uh, the excuse that I'll make is that the state is overrun with kids. They don't have enough homes to put them in. And that's not an excuse. It's like saying, you know, well, my mom was going through her own story and I was being molested. <laughs> that doesn't make it okay. Right. But it, it does make you aware that there's more to the story than, than we let on. There's, there is a many faceted situation. And in foster care, I feel like, you know, the workers are so overrun and there aren't enough homes. And when they get a kiddo in a home where they're safe and secure and I'm taking care of that child and they don't need to worry about them anymore, they can kind of take a breath and deal with the things that they urgently have to deal with. That doesn't make it okay, but that is the reality. And so I think in these, in two of the situations, well, actually in three, in three of them, in the little girl that was four, in those three situations, it was easier. They took the path of least resistance, the state did, 
they took the path of least resistance instead of really following through and doing what should have been done for three of those kids. Wow. I mean, unfortunately, the kids are the ones that take the hit. And how do you deal with that? With that? I'm just there. I'm there. I'm there 150% of the time. Whatever, whatever they need, you're there for them. You have that, they have that support system that they probably really need. And they have to emotionally go through. Right. And I can't do that for them. That's their story. Right. Um, Right. And, and I know what a difference it makes because of the other. So now we have 13 kids left and I call them, you know, they're, they're the permanent residents because I have papers on them and that's not politically correct, but it's funny. So (laughs) (laughs) they're paper. All right. Okay. So of those 13, (laughs) um, well, and they're the ones that they don't kind of come and go. They're very, they are, they're more grounded. And I know how much of a difference that makes because five of them are adopted. And so, listen, there's 18 kids. You have to find a way to organize them. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of emotions. That's a lot going on. Right. And, and to break it down for people, how that makes sense. I mean, five of them I call extras just because they came and stayed but it's different. They're different. They're not different in how I feel about them, but they are different right. in how they're, how it's broken down. Of the 13 right. permanent residents, five are adopted. Well, okay. I foster care for 12 years. I have five that are extras one way or another and five that were adopted. And I can tell you emotionally, the difference is enormous. They have permanency. They were adopted. They they know that they were adopted. They know a lot about their parents. They know about the system. I mean, I grew that my kids grew up and it was very open. You know, I said, some of you grew in my heart. Some of you grew under it. You came from all different places. And it was because when you get that phone call about that kid, I just intuitively felt like that one belonged. That was my child. Right. And you, you won't and hear it could, that feeling. It was completely intuitive for, for anyone wanting to do it and worrying. Trust me, you will know. That doesn't mean they all stay long term. That means they're supposed to be in the house. And that also means the ones that you say no to, you know, I just felt like they belong somewhere else. And I'm robbing that family of that. And I'm, I would be altering that kid's trajectory by trying to jump in and save every single kid. And, and I burn myself out. It, right. It's not worth any of those uh, situations. It's just not worth it. And so my goal was to know whether or not I really felt like this was a fit and this kid belonged and say no when they did. And I was very good about that. And I don't make apologies or excuses that now that's how you all the kids. Sorry, I didn't mean to do all the kids. Do all the kids get along? Yeah, actually. Um, they do. The, even the extras and the, the kid relationship is different. Yes, they do and no, they don't. So let's put it that way. Anybody who has siblings okay. knows that sometimes you love them and you want to play with them and it's great. And sometimes you want to punch them in the face. And, yeah, the younger brother. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And sometimes you'll see them getting picked on at school and you'll beat the hell out of five other kids. But you'll beat right. them up when you get home. Okay, so a sibling relationship is totally different. So we... We have four kids right now that rent a house together. Mm-hmm. So in this, I only have, there's only, well, that it's so hard to describe. Let's, let's eliminate the extras. The extras are all adults except for the one that's 12. 
but okay. she's not in my house right now. So let's eliminate okay. that. Let's put that on the back burner. Of the other 13, four, we only have three under 18 right now. And one of them is okay. about to turn 18. So there's only two kids left at home. And, uh -huh. um, right? So here's the thing. Yeah. In this situation, of those 13, 12 of them were born in 10 and a half years. Wow. So you have to think about that. So I have, I have a 27-year-old. Which is interesting because one of the extras is they're just, they're just a couple of months apart. So my kids are all pretty close right. in age. From 17 to 33, there are 17 kids. 17 years old to 33, oh there's 17 kids. From 27 to just turning 17, there's 12 kids out of 13. So we had kids very close in age. Have you ever seen the movie Cheaper by the Dozen? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. You remind, the, you remind me of that. It's a, it's, I love that movie. My boyfriend and I all, I don't know, we've watched that movie like a few times in the last couple months. It's so cute with all the kids and their relationships. And it's it's very, it's a cute movie, but it kind of reminds me of this a little in a different way. But like with all the kids running around and like, you know, sometimes arguing, but then like standing up for each other. Like what you said, that reminded me of the movie. Yeah. You know, people, a lot of people have asked to come over because they just want to experience what it's like to be in a house. I mean, just a couple of years ago, we had 12, 12 kids living at home still. And yeah, 12 was pretty much the cap because we've had some kids come and go and adults come. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of a revolving door through through some years. It was somewhat of a revolving door. But our kids are mostly adults now. And right you know, I, there were three kids in diapers for a long time. I was breastfeeding two kids. I, it was, that was what life was like for a long time. And I loved it. It was fun. Um, I think that's the difference also. And you may say that you're choosing to have kids or choosing to do foster care, but the attitude for that goes far beyond just making the choice to do it because having kids is the most difficult thing you'll ever do. It's always challenging. It's hard not to lose your own personal identity as a parent. It's hard not to feel, there are times that it feels like all you're doing is putting out fires and all, and you have right. to have, yes, you can choose to have a child, but it's, it goes beyond the perfect birth experience and the the beautiful little baby that sleeps soundly and looks peaceful. That's not reality of having kids. <laughs> like those, are like, the, those are fleeting <laughs> moments. And so you have to really sign up for a little bit more in your attitude and behavior than just choosing to be a parent or choosing to do foster care <laughs> because you have to choose yeah. to love it in the moments that it sucks. And there's a lot of moments that it sucks or that you feel like you don't have the answer or that you handled that badly or that you don't know what to do or that you feel lost or alone or like you're screwing it all up because those there's, moments there's are going to be, parenting. there shouldn't be a book on parenting. No, I mean, there's yeah. probably lots of them. I'm writing book two right now and it's, I don't have the title, but it's basically the non-parenting parenting book. Every one of us as parents okay parents our kids differently and we have our own personality and every kid I'm right. the same parent right I've had 18 kids come through you think I parent them the same absolutely not because they're not right. the same these kids don't they come wired with their own personalities and to think that you can just cookie cutter it now my consequences are pretty much the same what's okay. that no, no no I'm listening 
My consequences are pretty much the same. The things that are not okay are pretty much the same, but how I handle it for a kid that has, that's super shy and introverted and has a lot of anxiety is different than my, you know, my kid who's slamming trucks into the wall and loud and rambunctious. I'm not going to treat them in the same way at all, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm going to structure the consequences very similarly, but your, your attitude towards different kids is completely different. And that's why his kids are like, well, you loved them more. You treated them differently. Yeah. Damn straight. I treated them differently. I am certainly not going to treat a kid who is screaming at me in defiance the same way as the kid who is hiccuping with anxiety attacks. I'm not going to, and I'm not going to apologize for that. They're different personalities. They are in the end going to end up with very similar consequences, but my process Mm -hmm. to get there is going to be completely different. So any parent, so how can you write a parenting book? I could have the same situation. I have had the same situation. And with these 18 kids, I mean, I've done foster care. So kids have come at ages nine, 10, 12, five, you know, they've come at different ages. And so their baggage is very different and what they've experienced. You and I, If we were the same age and we were studying for the same Mm -hmm. thing in college and we went to the same class and heard the same seminar by the same guy at the same time, we we would walk out of that class and sit down for coffee and you would tell me what you learned in that seminar. And I'd be like, wow, I didn't even get that. I got Mm -hmm. all these things, right? We, We don't process things the same, even in very similar situations. We do not process things the same. And so you have kids that come to you broken. And as a parent, I have my own baggage and I'm broken and we're all trying to navigate it, but I'm the boss, right? (laughs) I'm the captain of the ship. (laughs) Yeah. We're, we're trying to figure it out together. I think one thing I did well was I looked at my kids in a tough situation and I've screwed up a lot of them. I've raised my voice far more than I've wanted to in times when it would have been best to do the opposite. And that's my downfall as a parent, because it's a very emotional situation when you're faced with something and you're reacting to it and you have a kid who's reacting to it and they're not handling it well. It's tough to take that step back and that breath. And so that was my downfall as a parent. But I did handle it. But every parent probably has that. Absolutely. Every parent probably goes through that. That's normal. I mean, I'm not a parent yet, but like, I'm sure when I am, I'm going to have those moments too, because, you know, things happen and you do the best that you can do. Or you think you're doing the best that you can do. And and sometimes you look back and you're like, oh, I should have done this differently. And that goes, that applies for any area in life. Sometimes you look back and you're like, oh, I should have done that differently or this would have been better this way. But in the moment you made the decision that you thought was best. Yeah. And I don't make excuses for it uh, because I did do you, you, I, I not only chose parenting and foster care and adoption, I not only chose it, I really loved it. And I did keep my Mm -hmm. own identity, but a huge part of what I wanted my identity to be was mom of 18. I mean, I know not the number, not that that is who I was. And I had a pastor once, this really cool energy working. He was so cool. He is so cool. And he looked at me once and he just said, you healed your childhood by helping heal these kids. And it was very Mm -hmm. interesting because my goal being a foster parent was had no selfish 
there, there was nothing selfish in wanting to do that. I felt like I got these kids and I could help them coming from a place of, I got you and I didn't perpetuate the cycle. So mm -hmm. let me use what worked for me and any tools I've picked up along the way. And, and I went through tons of training. And let me take all of that, all my skills and knowledge and my own personal past experience and pour that into you so that you also can can heal to a certain point and not perpetuate the cycle and get through some of that. I mean, I, I had altruistic motives in that process. It did do a lot to heal me. This is the interesting right. thing when we become parents and we do foster care. Or even when we go to that new job with our with our shiny new certificate or degree, we walk right. in and we think, what am I bringing to the table? And that there's nothing wrong with that. I think human nature is a little bit self-centered. I, I have a podcast, but I'll be on one because I still like to talk about myself. I mean, we all like to talk about ourselves. So yeah. we go into that job with our shiny new degree or whatever, and we think – and we should. What am I bringing to this situation? I'm in this situation to bring something. What we don't realize and what I didn't realize is in all of the lessons and the things that I really, I really hope I made a difference with these kids. That was my goal. I hope I changed their lives. I hope they know that I love them. I hope they know that I brought my best every single day. Uh, I I want that for them. I want them to take what I've done and make it infinitely better. Just use what I taught you as a stepping stone to do a better job on your own. I want all that. What they don't tell you. It sounds when like you you're doing it. I am certainly doing my best. <laughs> I, I'm doing everything I yeah. can. I have done everything I can for, uh, you know, over 27 years. What you don't realize is that they did far more for me. Far more. Oh. And that's not the healing my broken past part. That is, they taught me more than I'll ever teach them. They did more of that. If I did a bullet point list, you know, starting out, these are the things I want to accomplish in this new job. <laughs> you know, in being a foster right. parent, this is what I want. To, this is the legacy I want to leave behind. You right. don't realize how much you'll be changed in that situation, how much they'll teach you. And so when you go, when you embark on any journey, starting your own business, writing a book and the things that you can give, just keep in your back pocket the part that you're going to be changed more in that process than you will change other people. And that's so that, that's the lesson I learned. And, and, and it's in anything. I mean, I had no idea the impact these kids would make on me. Even the ones that were in passing, you know, the, the little girl I took in that had been locked in closets for days and wow. didn't stay with me more than three months or, you know, the, the little boy that I did respite for you, you have kids that come and go and I won't even remember all of them, but even in passing, you know, in that blink, you're exchanging some amount of energy where you ho I'm hoping that I have contributed to something. And I certainly know they contributed to my life, but it, it was more than just getting paid for foster care or doing respite for another parent or taking this kid in full time and understanding them. I mean, I, I really poured my brokenness into these kids in a way that I wanted them to come out on the other end better than I am. And, and that was wow. my goal, You're but I, 
I came out better than I was. And that was what was unexpected. I mean, so, so in so many ways, it was so unexpected how much it changed me. So seriously, everything happens for a reason. And you are doing something that is so inspiring, so amazing. You are changing so many people's lives. And it's something that I, I think people can learn a lot from. And you asked if kids, if the kids were close to each other, I have to say, yes. Like yeah. Yes, they're very, very close to each other, but with such a big family, it's always, I mean, since they were little kids crawling around, it changes, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's Taylor and Isaiah that are close, and sometimes it's Gabby and Abby that are close, and sometimes it's Ashley and Taven that, and it kind of rotates, but I would say there's always, in a family this big, there's always, people are like, hey, how's it going? What's going on in your life? Like, there's always something that's, yeah. Uh, sometimes at an almost catastrophic level, you know, Gabby was in the hospital less than a month ago and it was really scary. Oh right. Oh she's, she's turning 19 and, um, and yesterday or the day before yesterday, I taught her how to change the battery in her car. There's always really cool stuff happening. And that's just with one kid. Yeah. Um, and there's always stuff that's a little scary or that I'm, uh, there's always kids I have concerns about like, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm really gunning for this one right now. It, it, this could end badly. Um, as they've gotten to be adults, I mean, I'm more of a safety net. The kids have moved out and Dane and I are downsizing. And I want to make a clarifying statement. I had, I had the five, the five extras are mine. And I had 14 kids. I mean, I, yeah, I had 14 kids total. So those five extras plus nine and I was divorced and my daughter, Bree, who's now 27. And I mean, we, we worked together and we worked with another woman and we got, we all got along great. And this was years, years ago. The two of them went on a crusade to fix me up with someone. And they actually, they fixed me up with a couple people. It was a very amusing, fun time in my life. Uh, and they fixed me up with Dane. Dane had four kids and his wife had died. Oh so my gosh. I had 14 kids total and I had eight living, nine living at home when we met and then Bree moved out right around the, t within a month of us meeting each other. But she was the yeah. one that introduced us. And so I have eight biological children, but four of them I gave birth to and four of them Dane gave birth to that's not really the right way to say that but you know and so when people ask like the question I detest the most is which ones are yours because I don't care if you're talking about Andrea in Germany that is my foreign exchange student or you're talking about uh -huh. the child that I gave birth to uh, it doesn't make any difference they're all mine I don't feel differently about any of them um but I understand what they're saying. Like they want, you want, if I did a lineup of all 18 kids uh, and right. I do have a picture of a couple of years ago and I'll use it indefinitely because I think it was this Christmas will be four years. We had 14 kids at the same time together and I have a picture and it's on like all my information. Cause like 14 kids together was a feat of accomplishment. I can't even tell you. <laughs> um, I, <bet. laughs> I would love to be able to get everybody together. We've got one in Germany and one in, in Alaska and, you know, oh two gosh. in Texas right now. And, and it, part of it is that they're getting spread out. And, but, but part of it is just that we all live our own lives and I have never, you can't gather them all up on the same day at the same time, even during the holidays. So, For sure. um, 
Yes, they're, almost all of them are in touch with each other and to some degree. Uh, there are always glitches in that system and different personalities. And I think I'm the probably, Dane and I are the hub as far as if kids aren't keeping in touch with each other, we kind of bridge the gap for them. So my daughter who went through basic training in January um, for the Air Force, you know, she's she's still wow. in her, yeah, I, I have a great video on my YouTube channel. I think it's my favorite because it's the one that makes me cry every single time I see it. Like I have the one of my daughter getting married <laughs> Also, that ha they happened two weeks apart. My daughter got, I had one get married and one graduate from boot camp, two weeks apart from each other. And it doesn't Gosh. mean like I love them any different or I f feel any different. But for whatever reason, I think because I was Air Force, I was military and I understand it. And I, I there's a huge place in my heart for veterans because I did a stint in the military and I was military dependent. And so like I get the lifestyle, I think. And I right. watched this video of Alana graduating boot camp, and I like I'll start to cry if I think about it. So for whatever reason, that's emotionally that's so proud of her. I'm so proud of her. But like I love I don't love my daughter that got married any less. And her husband's amazing and they're expecting right. the first baby at Christmas. And there's nothing about that that's okay. less than right. I mean, it's like so there's always stuff going on and there's always great stuff going on and there's always hard stuff going on. Always. So of if you course. call me and now, you're like, I want to talk about Go, go. No, go, go. There's so much to talk about here that I'm like, <laughs> I, I want to make sure to talk about it all because it's so interesting. Finish, please finish what you, what you were saying. I apologize. No, if you called me and you asked me, hey, Jen, what's going on? I mean, like, that's like a loaded gun. And I don't talk yeah. about it. You I'd be like, you know what? For the most part, everything's really great right now. I could have a kid in the hospital and say that. But in my life over, it's been my oldest biological child that launched this whole story was 27 in April of 2019. So wow. for over 27, so my story with infertility for about 29 years now, this has been my story and a huge part of my life. And in that, I'm telling you, I have my own identity, even though this is an enormous part of who I am. Um, so if you ask me what's going on, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to look at you and say, everything's really pretty much great for the most part. And there's so much more beneath the surface of that statement, you know, so I, there's, yeah. there's always stuff going on. And as you, as I keep hearing all of this, all of this from you and everything that you're talking about and your, I mean, I have so many questions, but like how you're talking about, there's always so much going on and so many good things and how proud you are of your kids. I guess my question is, and what I keep wanting to know is how do you manage to do it all and make time for you? Because you are in really amazing shape. Like you take care of yourself. You have a podcast, you have a book, you have a blog, you you're working, you're doing everything. Like I'm hearing you talking about all these amazing things you're doing for everybody else, but you also manage to make time for you, which, and how do you do it? I think I either innately was good or I became good. And I don't know where one ends and the other begins at time management. So I'm very, one, I think we have different personalities. I am a very loud, outgoing, extroverted personality. 
And okay. having said that, I'm probably also one of the most laid back people. So Dane's brother recently came over within a, just a couple of weeks ago and said, is she, he's pointing to me, is she really as laid back as she seems? And Dane said, she is the most laid back person I have ever met. So one is, I think people assume that because I'm loud and outgoing and extroverted, that that means somehow that's high maintenance or that I'm uptight or I, and it's, I'm not that way. So I, no. I think, yeah. <laughs> so when I was when, on your podcast, you were so relaxed. You were just like, just talk about whatever you can say, whatever, just be open. Like you told me you were like, like I'm I'm laid back and I was like yeah it just like the conversation just flowed naturally and like it's it no you're you do not seem like you're high maintenance at all you just have a really good personality and you're positive and uplifting so I think we prioritize what's important to us I got up this morning your podcast was at 6 30 in the morning I'm usually up at five I actually yeah. set my alarm late so I I'm usually I'm up between 4 35 in the morning part of that is that I'm a morning person and part of that is because Me I have yeah but I and oh so if you're a night person just reverse this process right so I know I can get more done in my first three or four hours than I will the whole you know I mean that's just that's when I have the most energy it's also when I'm by right. myself everyone's sleeping no one's up I'm the exact same way and nobody I'm a lot of people they're not like that but I love being up like before the sun rises because you're right exactly what you said those first few hours nobody's awake whether it's in your family or clients or whoever it is nobody's awake so you can get so much done and you can be so highly productive and you're right if you're a nighttime person you could totally like flip that and do it the other way just flip it not a nighttime person but right. I'm the same way it's interesting I'm, I'm in bed at 8 30 every night like by nine o'clock, my kids, my kids have known that if you need something, if I go to bed at eight, eight thirty nine, and when the kids were little, it was a little different because I had to struggle to get everyone in bed as they've gotten older. I'm like, right. look, it's quiet time. You can stay up. I don't, you know, I, my daughter who's 17 right now, um, she probably stays up till three in the morning every morning and would sleep till noon. And that's her cycle. And I respect the fact that although I don't understand that I tell her, I'm like, you keep stripper hours and I give her, I give her a hard time. (laughs) Right. So, but I just know, Hey, I don't care if you stay up, just be quiet so that people who want to sleep can sleep. Right. I don't care. I don't care how you get things done and when you get things done and what your natural sleep cycle is, as long as everyone else's sleep cycle is respected. So one thing is I learned to just let things go. As a parent, I could try to get everybody to everybody to do things my way. Everybody doesn't want to do things my way. I don't want to do things their way. So why should they want to do things my way? And just because I'm the captain of this ship doesn't mean that I can change people's internal clock or these kids, you know, kind of how they're designed. And when they're little, it was a little different um, because you have to get up and go to school. But if she's doing online school and has a job and has a car and makes her own money and is completing her online school and her grades are good, I don't give a crap if she's doing it at 3 a.m. or 6 a.m. So I think in my personality, I, I you have to learn to let some things go. So you either have to learn to be laid back or you have to innately be laid back that everybody comes with their own personality and their own kind of who they are. And I 
am trying to honor and respect that as much as I can in a large family where you also have to respect everyone else. So as long as that's happening, I don't care. I, I, when my kids were really little, I knew that if it wasn't physically or morally harmful to them, your kid wants to mm -hmm. shave their head and dye the spikes blue, you know, your five-year-old girl. Right. Is if if I'm saying no, it's because I have a problem. If it's not physically or morally harmful, it's my problem. Mine. Right. I have an issue with my five-year-old daughter shaving her head and dyeing it blue. Because it's not physically mm -hmm. or morally harmful, and she wants to do it. And right. I decided way back 25 years ago, if it's not physically or morally harmful and I am and I have a problem with it, I need to recognize that it's my problem. And then within that, decide okay, what things can I let go and what things should I maybe, even though it is my problem, should I take a stand on? So I let my kids make really poor decisions about shaving their head and dyeing it blue when they were little, because what yeah. better way for them to have life experience and making really bad decisions? Because it's not physically morally harmful. Your hair will grow, it's not a big deal. I spent a right. lot of years right. wanting all my kids to wear a a button that said today I dress myself because as a parent, I was a little embarrassed, but I let them make those choices, <laughs> right? I let them make those choices yeah. because it's not physically or morally harmful. So if it bothers me, that's my problem and I need to let it right. go. So I think that's such an important lesson that so many people can apply to their life because there's so many things and like we care, sometimes people care so much about everybody else and external factors and and that affects the decisions that you make within your relationships or with your kids or at work or whatever it is. And when you learn to let those things go, it almost is like a weight's been lifted off of your shoulders and you can focus your energy on other things and then people are happier around you. I think so. And I mean, I have a nine-year-old, you know, we have an eight-year gap. We have all these kids right. all together. Then we have an eight-year gap and I have a nine-year-old who's in fourth grade. So it's like having an only child and a huge family. And, you know, in a year, she'll be the only one right. left at home. And right. and, and that's odd. <laughs> that, that, that's starting – it was easier having, like, three kids the same age. And, and a year – just over a year ago, we had three girls graduate. Um, they're all 19 now. And the interesting thing is like they represented every demographic. I had one that was adopted, one that was mine biological and one that was Dane's biological. And so I was like, wow, we have the all three representation right here. <laughs> all graduating at the same. And they're all close and they all love each other. And they all graduated from different. They they graduated in different ways. Um, I, I was that way the wow. same in, in school, in high school. When the kids get into high school, we don't all fit in the box. And so like Christopher went to no. John Moore and Sierra got her GED. And Alana did online school. And now Kezi is I don't care how you get there. I just need you to get there. It is 100% you're going to finish high school and one way or the other walk out with your high school diploma. One way or the other. Within yeah, that bound. For you. Uh, yeah, I don't care. How, how do you need to do it? How can I support you? What makes the most sense? Why do you think this is the best decision? Well, for the kids whose hair got shaved at five, you know, and my kids don't actually dye their hair till they're 12, but that's, you know, whatever. Um, but for the kids who are making really bad mistakes when they were young, but it wasn't physically or morally harmful, they know how to make, they know how to make decisions when they're older. Now that works really well when they want to go to high school, but let me tell you about how many of them 
have snuck out, broken the law, come home totally stoned or wasted, called me to pick them up, and how many times I've called the police. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if you if you're going to be a teenager making adult decisions, then I'm going to give you adult consequences. So I, I have a lot of fun and I'm super laid back right up until you cross the line. And once you cross the line and you think you're all that in a bag of chips and, you know, you can make these decisions, I'm going to tell you that's great. Then you can talk to the police that will teach you like the adult you think you're acting like. And right. I, I initiate help. So yes, I have no, absolutely zero hesitation. And you can ask any of my kids, whether they're the ones that called, called the police on or not. Um, I have no problem offering up that consequence also, or treating you at 15, like you're the adult you want to be or think you're behaving like absolutely perfect. So I'm, oh, I'm totally okay knowing that I'm not the best person in this situation, I've had a couple kids with suicide attempts and I didn't know about all of them. The time that I knew, and it was really scary and I was in the ER for eight hours and social services showed up, I brought her to a clinic, a rehab clinic, and I peeled her crying, sobbing, begging body arms off of me. And I handed her to the nurse who had to hold her down. And I walked out of the door and I left her there for 10 days. And yes, I sobbed in the parking lot. But I knew at that moment, even though I have done all the suicide awareness training and I was training foster parents in suicide awareness. And that was part of why I knew I wasn't the best person to help her at that point. And so I think as a parent, when stuff, what What? you did, what was, what was, what was, was you know, like if you know that, I think that's great what you did, because I mean, a big part of my mission is is also to, you know, give people tools, resources they need to live a fulfilling life, but also to help prevent suicides um, and, and things of that nature. And sometimes it's really important for parents or friends or whoever it is, or teachers, I don't care to be aware that, you know, of what's going on. And then also if they're not the right person to hand them over to the right person that can help them. So I think that's amazing that you did that no matter how difficult it was, because we can't be good at everything. And sometimes it's just out of our control. And I think that you asked me, how do you do it? Well, I know that I'm not good at all of it. And I, and I don't feel any, there's no lack of self-esteem in that. That is that there's someone else being an expert. We do this a lot as women, right? We want to look like we got it all together and do it all. If you can do an Excel spreadsheet, man, you're a resource. No, I, like, <laughs> I it's something I'm I, horrible. <laughs> right? Like I suck yeah. at certain things and yeah. I want to capitalize. I want you to see the things that I'm really good at and I want to be a resource mm-hmm. to you. Well, that goes both ways. And I think sometimes as women, we get caught up with feeling like less than, or we're catty to each other because we don't look at oh, each other as oh resources. God, so sad. So in raising kids, man, I have just a resource guideline here that if I am not the right person or the best option, 
I am eliciting the help of someone that is, and that's part of how I did it all. When, when I felt like I wasn't best, I homeschooled my kids for years and science or math, or if I was weak at something, I found another family that was homeschooling or a teacher support. And that's who helped teach that math. Not me. I wasn't good at homeschooling because I'm brilliant and smart and great at every subject. I was good at homeschooling because I found resources of people or things that were better than I was. That's why I was so good at it. I'm good at parenting for the same thing because I'm good at a bulk of it and I am not afraid to find a resource when I'm not. And it's it's it doesn't make me feel like less of a good parent. It makes me feel like a better parent that I find those resources and in, intensely thankful for the person who has that a step better than I do. And that's part of how I balanced it. And I was good at time management. I learned to get up early because I'm a morning person. When the kids were little, I had like a little home gym. And fitness was really important because I saw my mom yo-yoing her weight and always, and most of her life being overweight and having all these health problems. And I didn't want that to be me. And I just felt like being in your 40s was so old. And now I'm like, damn, I feel better than I did in my 20s. Like, I'm not having kids anymore. I'm not pregnant. I'm not breastfeeding. My body's not going through all of that, you know, those emotions. I feel better at 48 than I did at 28. Although I keep saying that I'm celebrating. This year will be the 21st anniversary of my 28th birthday, you know. And um, (laughs) I'm in the 28 Forever Club because I feel so damn good physically, you know. I take care of myself. And part of that is that I'm, uh, I am 150% on top of preventative medicine. So I get my blood work every year. I get my mammogram every year. When I'm sick, I get extra sleep and I don't make excuses or apologies. You know what I mean? Like I'm so preventative on the front end. I don't get sick very often. Um, I worked out at home because I wanted to stay healthy and fit and And part of that maybe started out as keeping up with my kids. But I think when you're in your 20s having kids, I mean, you're tired all the time. And that was part of it. But part of it was wanting to be an example to my kids. I I taught them how to eat healthy because we ate healthy. I taught them how to stay in shape because I stayed in shape. Um, I'm a runner. So I get up at 430. Me too. Yay! We need to go on a run sometime. (laughs) I get up at at 4.30 on Tuesday and Thursday because I leave at 5.10 to go running with a group of women. And on Saturday, I do it at 6.30. We run at 6.30 on Saturday. And I do it that early because that's when I can do it. So So you do what you have to do when you can do it. What what are your routines? Tell me about your routines because you sound like you have, you manage your time well, you let things go. You're not afraid to ask for help. You don't make excuses. You do what you have to do. You take care of yourself. Like, Tell me about those routines because there are so many people, whether they're a parent or whether they're just working and they're not, they don't have kids yet. And they're constantly making excuses. Like yet here you are, like I said, doing all these things. Like tell me about your routines because I think a lot of people can learn from this. I think the first thing you need to do is decide what your priorities are. My priorities were that I was going to do probably over the last 29 years, I've probably done over 90%. I, You know, I would ask Dane this question to see what he thinks, but I know I'm over 90% at cooking everything and I cook from scratch. I don't, I don't mean like I get a frozen pizza and I cook at home or I cook from home. I'm cutting up the peppers. Um, I do over 90% of it. I'd say almost 95%. So right around there. So eating healthy and doing all the cooking, one of that was an affordability issue. 
because I didn't have the money to uh-huh. go out to eat. Imagine taking 12 kids <laughs> out to eat, you know. Uh, so the first thing is priority. What's important to you? It was important to me to stay fit and stay healthy and eat healthy. It was important to me to get enough sleep because that's so vital. And so well, I knew for right. me that meant I go to bed by 9. So I had to set it up right. so the kids went to bed by nine. I also had to set it up where my kids were younger and they all would have a nightlight in their bed and you can read. It's quiet time. At a certain point, my house is quiet time. Um, and so if you don't, you don't have to go to sleep, but you do have to go to bed and you have to be able to get up to go to school. That's the other criteria. Um, so I go to bed early cause I'm not a night person. My kids know, they know, I mean, I had a daughter that walked, she's 19. She doesn't live at home. She walked in the house um, came in my room, woke me up and told me she needed something in the middle of the night. And I'm never going to get angry ever, ever. Mm-hmm. But I am on ER duty at night. <laughs> when, when I go to bed, yeah. I'm like, you better be bleeding from an artery. So if you have a nightmare or you're sick or there's something <laughs> going on, like, please wake me up. Um, and, and I wake up fast and easy and I will never be angry. But I, I respect my boundaries by going to bed early. I'm up between 4.30 and 5.30 every morning. And mm-hmm. I also have a, a goal for the day. And now oh, I use a Google ooh, Calendar. Like yep. My, I, so it used to be when the kids were little, I would write it up down on paper. And now it's more that I have Google Calendar, right? So I know every Monday I have to send an email because my podcast releases the next day. So I have the person's name every Monday morning at 530. Um, So I I use Google Calendar to serve me. It's like my assistant. And I put notes in there of reminders of things I need to do. I, I put on my calendar. I know I run every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. I know I do. But it's mm-hmm. on my calendar because it's a date with myself that I'm not going to break. And oh, I um, love that. Yeah. If I set up a doctor's appointment or I'm meeting you for coffee, I'm not going to break that appointment. But we mm-hmm. we break appointments to ourselves, you know, and I am worth more than that. So I, I put everything on the calendar, even if it's running. I'm up at 4.30 and I'm running at 5.20, that sort of thing. I put it all on the calendar and it shows. And it's not because I want to look busy. It's on the contrary. It's because I want to make sure that the times, because that's a priority. So nothing else will go there. And then I look at my house at night before I go to bed. And I think of the three things that I want to accomplish it could be like emptying the dishwasher or vacuuming the floor or, you know, you have this list. I remember at one point I made a list of all the things that I do, vacuuming, sweeping, mopping, just just right. a list of all of the things that I do. Because I think we don't give ourselves enough credit for the things that we do in the household. And then there's yeah. there's like cooking and meal prep and dinner time. And like dinner time is it's carved out on my calendar. It's a it it's pretty much a no technology zone you know I mean well, we have certain guidelines so so amazing. I said I what are my priorities I don't want technology at the table I go running three mornings a week I need to do this list of things but I don't need to do this list of things every single day so I used to keep the list of everything that got done I had a chore wheel for the kids when they were younger and there were a lot of kids at home so everybody contributed but basically I think what are the three things in the house that I really want to get done right now I need to take the hose and spray the outside because, you know, you get cobwebs on the outside of your house. Mm-hmm. Dane needs to, to 
mow the back lawn. I mean, it's stuff like that. So I pick like three things that I really want to get done and they're in order of priority. And then three things that I want to do with the family. And then three, I kind of do things in, in with a number three for no particular I reason. I going to ask why. Okay. I think reason. it's not okay. overwhelming. I, think it's, I do the same thing. It's not an overwhelming number. It's a pretty easily accomplishable number. Um, but and I know when I go to bed, and I don't write it down anymore, I just know, okay, master bathroom, vacuuming, whatever. I just know that there's three things that I want to get done in my house, and then the, there's your work schedule. And I'm I'm an independent contractor, so, you know, coaching right. and speak, speaking, and there's a lot of things that are my business, but I make money as a virtual assistant, so I actually have clients, and I slate out right. their hours. So... You know, you have to schedule. I, I know what time my kids go to school. So I have to walk Taven to the bus every morning at 845. So I have hours in the morning that are productive. And then I have, you know, nine-year-old hours that we get ready for school and we do that. And then once she's gone, I have those those six and a half hours that are for – so I really chunk my time into what's happening then. And from – between 7:30 and 8 when my 9-year-old wakes up until she leaves at 8:45 that's her time and then when she's gone then it's my time again for clients and so i think i have decided what's the most important to me and let me tell you mm -hmm. what's the most we haven't had cable for years and we do watch tv almost every night for about an hour we pick shows that are family shows and we all kind of curl up on the couch and we have we have berries with whipped cream and cinnamon on them a lot. And, you know, I'm like, we, we spend time at dinner and we really talk at dinner and then we kind of, everybody splits and does their own thing. And then we come back from like seven to eight and we watch TV because that's our priority. We want to cuddle up on the couch under blankets and eat berries with whipped cream and cinnamon. So whatever your thing is, right. Um, Right. Dinner time, I still, I always, almost always cook dinner and we always sit down and you do come to the table and it is technology free because I really think you're important enough that I, we can give each other 30 minutes of our day. And I right. still cook things and I still, it's still healthy and it has been that way for like 28 years. So I think you just get into a rhythm, but the first thing is figuring out what's important. Maybe cooking dinner is not important because you hate it and that's totally cool. So what's your alternative and how is that a priority and how do you manage that? What does that look like for you? And maybe you're a night person. So you put the kids to bed at nine and from nine to two are your most productive hours. It doesn't matter. What does matter is recognizing what your strengths and weaknesses are, capitalizing on the strengths, finding resources for the weakness, and figuring out what your priorities are and listing those out. And sometimes you physically do it on paper. So what's important to me is to wake up and to smile and to think of three things that I'm really grateful for and to think of three things that I really want to accomplish in the day that are positive. I want to make people smile. I mean, it can be anything. But you're going into the day with a mindset of making a difference in the life of someone, even if you never know that you did it. So you have to set you have to set your goals for the day. And my goal is that I'm going to make the, a difference in the life of at least one person, even if it's in passing. And I never know that I did it. That means my attitude has to be a certain way moving forward through the day if I'm going to make an impact on somebody and never even know that I did. So I have to have that attitude. So you have to set yourself up in whatever you want, and that ha those have to be your goals. And it can be anything 
But it's part of what I love in coaching is figuring out what that is, figuring out your strengths and your weaknesses, where to find the resources for that and what your priorities are. Because we're all stressed and we all have 24 hours. And and as parents, we right. all think we're doing a crappy job and we're, we want the day to just be over. And most of us are dreading Monday and living for Friday. And if you want your life to not feel that way, that has to come from your ad, changing your attitude and finding out what your priorities are and admitting what you suck at. Man, I love sucking at Excel spreadsheets. I'm never going to be good. I don't want to be good. And I have a resource 150% of the relatable. time. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's just, I suck at lots of stuff. I can give you a list. But I also know that I have resources for those things. And I have um, my nine-year-old uh, knows that I do podcast interviews. So she woke up about 10 minutes ago. Now, my nine-year-old mm -hmm. was deathly afraid of spiders. So I brought her to someone who does... Um, NLP, which is kind of like hypnotherapy and energy work. It's very hard right. to explain, right? And she yeah, went. I know what it is. Yeah. Okay. So she went through an NLP session um, to get over her fear of spiders and about a month ago. And she still, we've decided, we've agreed that she does not like spiders and she will probably never like spiders, but she's no longer allows that to control her life. So she just walked into my room and we, we write notes to each other when she's awake and I'm either I'm, I'm in a podcast, right? She knows she can come yeah. in and she just walked in and she held up a note that said, mom, I just killed a spider. <laughs> So, oh my there, God, that's a, there you that's go. A live you're you're doing all the right thing. Right? Wow. It's a, win, it's a win for today, right? So, we're going into the day it knowing is. that it's going to be a great day because she didn't let her fears of spiders rule her and she took care of it without even having to come get me and she didn't hide in her room till I got off the podcast. She, so I seriously I, got the chills when you said that. Like, the fact <laughs> that, like, you knew that, like, you didn't, like, you took her somewhere that you thought could help her. Like, you were proactive about it. Yeah. She was there. She went through it. And the fact that she came in during this podcast and held up that sign and she respected your time as well. Like, you're doing so many things that are just so inspirational and you're doing it the right I mean, from what I can, from what you're telling me, like, that's something to be really proud of. You have so much to be proud of. You're doing, like, I am, and I am proud. And you know what? We can be proud and be humble. So we have all of yes. these social things, right? These, well, I'm really good at parenting my kids. I was awesome at foster care. That doesn't make me bragging. It doesn't make me no. not humble. It makes me know, like, I was really good at this. Within that, when I found that I had weaknesses, I found resources. That was part of why I'm so good at parenting my kids. It isn't because I helped her get over her fear of spiders. It's because I found a resource that helped her get over her fear of spiders. And now here we are. Okay, we we I'm not afraid to lock arms with people and community raise a child and find do I feel less than because I couldn't get her over her fear of spiders nope nope I feel yeah. empowered because I found a resource that allowed her to do that and she's going to move forward in her life feeling more confident and better about herself but I set that up and that's what makes me a good parent uh, we can rely on others so you need to know what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses the weaknesses are just as important because that's where we find resources that's where we lock arms that's where you give someone else a gift of shining in what they are good at. That's wow. their blessing you, to give to someone. We are robbing them by muddling through the shit we're not good at and pretending that we are and feeling less e than. Ego. It comes down to ego. It is ego. Let go of it. Who cares? So let it go. Yeah. You are robbing that person of that blessing by not allowing them to help you. Wow. Well, Jen, this has been 
absolutely incredible. I have learned so much. I think everybody is going to learn an incredible amount from, from you. You are so positive, uplifting. Everything you are doing is just wonderful. You're making an impact. I so appreciate you being here. And, and first of all, I would you let everyone know where they can find you? Because I'm yeah. sure people are going to want to look you up and I'll, I'll link everything in the podcast notes but some people don't look at the podcast notes so why don't you tell everybody where they can find you where they can get your book I mean people can learn so much from you Jen you can find me on mom of 18 it's mom of 18.com and all my social media links are there a, a contact form is there my google voice number my email basically Every single way that you could ever want to contact me is on my website. The link to buy my book is there. My podcast is there. It's under construction right now, depending on when this comes out. But I still send everybody there because those that information is still accessible even while it's under construction. So, And the thing is, is just, just reach out, you know. It, all you have to do is reach out. Everyone's story is valuable. No question is stupid. Just ask the question or, or reach out to me. I don't love afraid. people's story. Yeah. Don't be afraid. I'm just a resource. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much for being here today, Jen. You're amazing. Thank you for sharing your story. I found it, like I said, to be so valuable and you are such an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs>